the scripture this morning and it hails from Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 17 if you would join in reading me reading with me starting at verse 10 finally be strong in the Lord and the power of his might put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which which you can can extinguish extinguish the flaming arrows of the the evil evil one. Take Take the the helmet helmet of salvation salvation and the sword of the spirit, which which is is the the word of God. God. The people, Amen. the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Amen. Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church. It's good to be here and good to share in that scripture again for, I think, our sixth week straight. Uh, we've been in a series that we're calling Suit Up, and uh, we're studying this passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, let me just clear off just we'll rock them. Sorry. Don't know where these came from. <laughs> All right, well, starting with a little Sunday morning silliness. Uh, welcome to Tri-Cities Church. Hey, if this is your first time here, I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Cities. I'm glad to be able to share uh, from God's Word with you and with our church. Uh, I do welcome you here, and um, one of our things that we love to do is we just love to know that you're here so that we can be praying for you. There's cards in the seats in front of you. That's just a way of engaging here at Tri-Cities Church. It's a way of us getting to know you, but then also for people who are already known, uh, you can write any kind of prayer request, or even if you have a change of address or any of that kind of thing that you want to update us about. Uh, We love to just be uh, part of a community with you that's joining you as we go through life together, uh, praying together and learning what it looks like for us to love the Lord together. As I said, we're in our sixth week of this series. We're talking about the armor of God. God has given us his own armor is what we've seen in this passage, uh, that God has already secured the victory, that it's not something that we're hoping will be ours, but God has already secured it through what he did through Jesus Christ on the cross a long time ago. Uh, Therefore, we are receiving the victory. We are waging war against the enemy. It's that scripture that Greg read said that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That means we are not fighting against one another, but there's actually principalities, as the Bible says, and powers. There's the enemy, the devil, who is scheming against us, and this is war. You know, I was sharing with the worship team uh, this morning, a little bit before we came out, just how in the routines and just how mundane life is, like you're just kind of going through the motions, at least for me, sometimes I feel like I get sucked into that. Uh, and as I do that, it's all about getting things done, right? It's about uh, getting the things that need to get done, like getting up, getting dressed, getting to work, uh, getting home, getting the kids fed, getting dinner cooked, that kind of thing, uh, keeping the house clean, cutting the grass, all these different things that keep us busy. 
uh, and we forget that we're in a battle against the enemy, that the enemy is actually scheming against us, that he's placing snares in our pathway, uh, that he's trying to get us to stumble and fall. And when we do fall and we look back and we see that we weren't living with a wartime mentality, right? We weren't keeping our radars on, uh, up or as um, Peter writes in First Peter, uh, we weren't living with sober minds, minds that were clear, alert, ready, because we were recognizing that the enemy was against us. We, we, we see that, um, that there are times that we can avoid um, falling in response to the devil's schemes uh, if we are to live alert. And this passage is reminding us that we are to live lives that are fully alert because there is an enemy that's after us. Now, that's not to scare us um, because um, the victory's already been won. Amen? All right, well, this morning we are uh, almost wrapping up this series. We are in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. Next week, I'm excited about this because we're talking about prayer. And, and one of the things about prayer is that it's the thing that distinguishes the army of God, right? Those who believe in Jesus Christ from everyone else, right? It's the fact that we lean and depend. We trust on a power that's greater than our own. So even though we have God's armor, and this week we'll see that we have God's very own sword, uh, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible says. We see that we have all the weapons for battle. Even though we have all of that, we don't lean on our own power, but we trust and depend on the power of God, which is for us. And so next week, I'm excited about this. You want to be here for this uh, message next week as we uh, talk about what it looks like for us to pray, and particularly to pray that the power of God's Spirit will intervene on our behalf and do powerful, miraculous things beyond our own power. Well, let's pray, and then we'll get into our message this morning. God, we, uh, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to open, um, to open the Bibles and to read Holy Scripture. God, we thank you that this is your word to us, not written today, but for us today. And so, God, I pray that as we open it, that it will come alive to us, that we will hear it with fresh ears, and maybe in a different way than we've heard it before. But ultimately, God, I pray that we will hear you, that we'll hear your voice calling to us, that we'll have, hear your instructions for us, that we will understand that the way of the Lord is good and worth trusting, and that we'll follow in all of your ways for all of our days. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, the life of faith and is often referred to as a journey. Uh, we talk about this journey of faith, and that's because there's a sense of progression to the life of faith, a sense of movement or this sense of maturing. So as we become followers of Jesus Christ, there's this maturity that happens the longer we walk with the Lord. And so uh, what that ends up meaning is that for us in, the, in a space like this, uh, that we're not all in the same place uh, in our walk with the Lord, in our journey of faith. But together as a church, we're headed in the same di direction. We're headed towards being uh, more faithful, having deeper belief, having our lives more in line with God's own righteousness and holy character. So as we learn what it looks like to live for the Lord, we take next steps. 
And as we take those next steps, we find ourselves looking more Christ-like. And ultimately, that's what's happening within the church, right? So we can look at the church and you can see, um, we can see different things and see that it's an imperfect community and a community that definitely has a long way to go. But ultimately, if you're able to track our journey, you can see that we're maturing and progressing in the Lord, that we're taking these next steps. Steps. In fact, the Bible talks about this and uses that word sanctification. It's one of my uh, favorite biblical words because it talks about the progressive work of God and man to make us more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. It's this work that God is doing to free us up from sin and to help us to walk in the newness of life so that we can actually be more like Christ. It's a progressive work. It's a maturing It's a journey that we take to become more like Christ and not like more like Christ when we get to heaven, but actually more like Christ in our actual lives. But what we see in the scriptures is that God begins kind of wooing and pursuing us uh, from long before we ever believe, right? And maybe you can see this in your own story. Maybe you didn't believe in Jesus too late in your life and you can look back and you can see the ways that God was present through situations or maybe through specific people and he was calling you you to come and trust him or or follow him. Or, Or maybe it's from the time when you were a child and your parents were teaching you the Holy Scriptures or some mentor or somebody was influencing you and was teaching you the Holy Scriptures and sharing with you about Jesus. So you could see as you look back that God was wooing and pursuing you um, from long before you believed. And one of the mistakes that I think we commonly make in the church is that we make uh, belief the end game, right? We make it the point that we're trying to get to, and then once we've gotten to belief, we're saved or we're secure. We've been rescued, and now we're safe in God, and we don't see that there's much that God wants to do in our life long after we believe, that in fact, that the rest of our life, in fact, uh, you could almost look at belief as a starting point for us for the work that God wants to do in our life. It's not the end. God's not trying to get us to believe. Rather, he wants to get us way beyond belief in this journey of faith that uh, is sanctification, the theological word of this progressive work of God and man as we work with God that makes us more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. In fact, if you look in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, it talks about uh, the fact that uh, belief, if belief is the end game, uh, if it's belief in and of itself, uh, then, then that's actually a vain way uh, of living. Let me, let me get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, I think we might have it on the screen. I'll save us some time. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you, take your st- you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, right? By your belief in this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Now, Paul is speaking here, and he's writing this to the church. Uh, and he's telling the church, like, I preached the gospel among you, right? I planted your church, right? I shared the gospel with you. You've come to this point of belief. But if belief is your end game, right, if belief and salvation, like this uh, idle place of salvation is the end game, then you've believed in vain. He says, hold firmly to the word I preach to you. In other words, what he's saying is that throughout the rest of your life, from the moment you believe onward, hold firmly to that word so that the word of God that you that caused you to first believe becomes the word of God that shapes you for the rest of your life, right? And it's this sanctifying process that we hold firmly to the word of God and it continues to shape us and mold us into the people that God has created us 
to be. Now, the thing I like about sanctification, there was a chart that I've shared with you once before, uh, that ultimately this, like in this chart, I don't have it on the screen, but ultimately this chart has us like here where we believe, and then it has kind of God and eternity and foreverness and, and heaven and all this up here. And ultimately it shows like us moving uh, like in, in a direction, but not just like a linear way, but we're moving kind of closer to God as we take next steps in our life of faith. And so ultimately we start here, we're moving this way, but sometimes there's uh, um, uh, kind of like setbacks in the life of faith, but ultimately we're still moving Godward. We're still moving in the direction of Christ. So although we stumble and fall sometimes, um, that, that we're still moving in that direction. Now sometimes in the life of faith we move quicker than, than others, right? There are seasons that we feel like God is really doing something powerful in our lives to pull us closer to him. And there are seasons that we feel like God is distant and disconnected from us. I remember when I was a teenager, God did something powerful in my life. And this was one of the first times that I remember this happening. And I, I believed uh, from the time I was, I think I was eight years old that I was baptized into Christ and, and believed in him and declared that before a church. Um, but, but when I was in my late teen years, I just remember I was going Going through the motions, the things I was taught in Sunday school and church, and I, I was taught that I had to read my Bible. So I was reading my Bible, and I was saying scripted prayers that I had memorized, and I was repeating all these things. And one day I kind of broke out of that mold, and I prayed a genuine prayer from my heart, and I just asked God to open up the scriptures and reveal to me kind of the joy and the excitement that I see around other people that they have in their faith in Jesus Christ. And I promise you, that night, God did something miraculous in my life that made a leap in the process of sanctification. He took me quickly from one point to another. He opened up the scriptures. They came alive to me like they had never been before. When I was reading them, it was almost like I could visually see them. I could see the stories, and and God began pulling me towards him in a way like he, at least it felt like he hadn't in, in the past. And, and, and I, um, I, I mean, as, as this happened, I got so excited about my faith and so excited about wanting to live for Jesus. And I'm only a teenager, and, and, and it felt a little, bit, a little bit odd. I even started, at one point, I even started carrying my Bible to school with me. I would stick it in my backpack, and I would carry my Bible to school because on the bus, I would read my Bible. And I just felt like God was doing something in my life. And, and I wanted that to continue because it felt so good at that moment, and it felt so right at that moment. But I knew there was so so many things that would snatch that away from me that I began to, to, um, I began to disconnect myself from, from the world, right? I, I began to pull, pull back, and, and, I, and I remember my friends thinking I was crazy because I, I started throwing away cassettes, you know? Like, I had uh, that Tupac Machiavelli album, like, that had to go, right? Uh, Outcast, Goody Mob, that, that stuff had to go, right? I, I, uh, I had just seen that... Uh, what was that movie? I know what you did last summer. I think I was. I know what you did last summer too. And like I was just like, oh, I can't watch that kind of stuff anymore, right? And so I started cutting out things like rated R movies and uh, music with explicit language. And I started cutting out the places I would go and the people I would hang around because I was trying to avoid these negative influences. Ultimately, I was trying to avoid the world in order for me to live more like Christ. And somehow I believed that um, by avoiding the world. And disconnecting myself. And, and, and let me just say, um, and, and, I, and I wrestled with this all week, and I, I kind of shared a little bit of it with my wife. We had this conversation, this dialogue about this, um, but, because I, I wrestled with this. Because on the one hand, I think disconnecting from those things uh, avoided 
negative influences uh, that ultimately were voices in my life that shaped my character. So I think we do have to be careful of what we listen to and what we allow ourselves to hear. And we have to be careful of what we watch and what we see and those things that influence and shape our character. Because ultimately, the things we hear, the things we see, the things we immerse ourselves in are become the things that shape us. In fact, there's somebody that says you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? And so it could be the people that you're around or it could be the influences that you're listening to. Those things that you spend the most time with become what shapes you. And so I tried to disconnect myself from the world, um, but I was missing it, though. At that age, I was missing that God was calling me to the world, that God had a bigger role for me in the world, and it had to do with me being in places where there could be negative influences, being in even dark places so that I could be light and not be influenced by them. You know, in the Bible, when we see, uh, we see this word world, and we're going to take a while to get around to the sword of the Spirit. That's where we're getting at today. So if you're like, wait, I thought we were in the suit up series, and uh, I thought we were going to talk about swords. It's going to take us a while. Hopefully, we're going to be able to get around to the sword of the Spirit. But we've got to do a little bit of work before we can get to the sword of the Spirit in order to understand why God has given us a sword uh, to fight the enemy. And so, uh, so the Bible uses this word world. It uses it to refer to dominant culture that's disconnected from God. And so it uses it to talk about this dominant culture of the day that was disconnected from God, but was influenced primarily by the devil, by the enemy. In fact, if you look in Ephesians chapter 2, just a little bit of uh, a couple of chapters ahead of where we are uh, this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read this verse actually last week. Listen to what it says. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about Satan, the devil, the enemy, right? He's talking about the enemy, and he calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So there is, uh, he's not saying that, he's not saying that the air is polluted, but he's saying there's something, wherever the air flows, right, um, that the enemy is the ruler there, that Satan is the influencer there, that he's an influential voice in those spaces. You can look again in John chapter, uh, John chapter 12, where it talks about this very same thing about Satan uh, being the uh, largely the, the, the influencer of this world. In John chapter 12, um, verse, I think I'm picking up in verse 31. There we go. Verse 31, noun is the time, uh, and this is Jesus talking. Jesus is talking, and he's uh, kind of preparing his disciples even at this point for himself to go to the cross. And he says, noun is the time for uh, judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. He's talking about the devil, and he's calling him the prince of this world, right? And so he's recognizing and he's acknowledging and he's teaching us that the devil is the primary influencer of the world. In fact, in Jesus' day, and I believe we say in our day today, uh, that dominant culture is primarily influenced by the enemy, by Satan himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, listen to what it says there. It says this, it says, the God of this age, God, little g, not, not Jesus, not God in heaven, right? The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And again, there's some versions of the Bible that says, calls it the God of this world, right? The, the God of this world is the one, and he's blinded the minds of unbelievers, and ultimately he's the primary influencer in this world. And so what we see going on here 
is that we live in this world and we're immersed in this dominant culture uh, that is not shaped by God, but rather is shaped by the enemy. And it's difficult to live there uh, and not be influenced by it. And the Bible is always calling us to live there, but not to follow the patterns of the world. In fact, if you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read this, I think, last week too. It says this, It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So don't follow the pattern that the world sets for you because it's primarily influenced by the enemy. But follow the pattern that God has set for you. In 1 John, I think it's chapter chapter 2, verse 15, listen to what it says. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So it's not saying don't have love for the people, don't act in love towards the people, but don't love the world and the ways of the world so much um, that you crave those ways and those become the ways that shape you. And so the Bible's setting up this tension for us, if you will, right, that we all feel and we all walk in, right? There's things in this world, there's patterns in this world, there's ways of this world that dishonor God, uh, but we live amongst them, and our world can kind of teach us that those are normative and right for our lives. And the Bible's always pushing us back and say that we as followers of Jesus Christ must not follow the ways of this world, but we must stand on the truth of God. We must not love the ways of this world so much so that those become our ways, but we must love the ways of God, which are fundamentally different than the ways of the world. The Bible's showing us that the way of God and the values that we have for ourselves as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, are fundamentally different, and those shape our lives so that we look different than the world. And so the big question becomes, what's the role of the church in the world, right? What's the role of the church in, in our culture? Now, there's multiple ways that the church has uh, responded to this. I'm going to have my wife come up here and help me demonstrate some of the ways uh, that, the, the, um, that the, uh, the church has responded to this. On, on the one hand, the church has been a critic of, of culture, of, of the world. And that means we've stood at a distance and we've yelled out, why can't you get your act together? Why can't you ever do right? Why can't you do the things that you're supposed to do? Why can't you believe and behave and do the things you were created to do, right? And that's the critic of culture. Now, if I lived like that with my wife, how how far do you think that would get me? (laughs) If that happens, y'all better look for me in a freezer in a basement somewhere. Um, (laughs) Because we live in a Caribbean home, and I was telling somebody the other day, we have uh, multiple machetes because Caribbeans can't live in a house without a machete. That's like... uh, 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 that's like a that's like a kitchen knife for like a. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it just wouldn't work. But the church has taken that stance at times throughout history towards the world, right? It has yelled at the world about what they needed to do, how they needed to get their act together. And and that's not biblical, right? The Bible's not calling us to relate to the world in that way. Now, there's another way that the church has tried to relate to the world, and that's by being partners with the world, where we join hands with the world. We recognize, hey, there's some things that you like that I like. There's some things that you do that we do. Uh, Let's just do these things together, right? Let's just go out and let's just do 
good in the world. Let's feed the homeless. Let's, let's take care of the sick. Let's do these things together. But let's not call a one out of um, the world and into the church. But let's just join hands and do things together. And what ends up happening is there's, there's, no, um, there, there's no need necessarily for the church. It ultimately becomes just this civic organization that's working alongside the world, that's helping the world do what the world's already doing. Right? And so that's one way that the church has tried, but ultimately that's not living out the gospel, nor is it living into what God created us to be, which is a people who are going out into the world in Matthew chapter 8, 28, where it says, go into the world, make disciples, right? Call people to believe, baptize them, and, and send them back out into the world so that they can go and make disciples and baptize and teach them to believe. So it's not ultimately, it's not living into what God called the church to be. There's another uh, way that this has played out in our society, and that's that the church has become one with the world. That is that the church has kind of uh, uh, crouched behind or become so much like the world that it's become not able to be distinguished from the world. And so when, the, when you look at the church, it looks just like the world because we've become like them. We've bent on some of the things we believe or some of the things we've taught. Or we've bent on some of our values and our morals. Ultimately, what ends up happening is we blur with the world and there is no distinction. So those who are not a part of the church, um, they look at the church and they go, wait, why do I need to do that? Because you're doing what I've already done, right? Um, I, can, I, can do, I can do good all by myself. Like, I can do good without, without the church. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Woo! <laughs> so, 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 so what we begin to see is the church has always struggled to relate and um, how it should relate to the, to the world. But what we see in Jesus is that Jesus lived fully in the world and he transformed culture. That Jesus lived fully in the world and he transformed culture. Like he, he um, I love the way the Message Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says he moved into the neighborhood. Right, and he didn't pick the best neighborhood. He didn't build a palace. He didn't have wealthy parents who were well-educated and had all this different. But he moved into the, he became a common, everyday person. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mindset among you that was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing. Right, Christ, who made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Right? So, so it, it, the Bible's showing us over and over again that what God did was God took on flesh and bones. He moved into the neighborhood. He lived fully within culture. He didn't pick and choose what he would experience. He didn't say, no, not that mom. That, that won't do for me, right? I'm Jesus after all, right? Or not, no, not that neighborhood. That won't do for me. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm Jesus. Like, I, I don't belong there. But rather, he moved into the neighborhood being God in the flesh, and he lived among people. He built friendships. He had relationships. He had a job. He did these things uh, that everybody does. He shopped local in his neighborhood, uh, maybe because there was no such thing as this other kind of, like he couldn't go on Amazon and buy stuff. So he shopped locally. He had friends that lived in his neighborhood. I don't think he would have used Amazon anyway. Well, I don't know. Amazon, golly, they make it hard for you not to like to shop local. But local is good, <laughs> right? Um, because local, shopping local contributes, this is really on the sidetrack, contributes to a thriving community in a neighborhood that has um, fantastic resources and amenities. 
All right, that's my plug for shopping local. All right, so, but, but so like, what we see is that Jesus moved in the neighborhood, that he lived there, that he invested there, and he did so with integrity so that he could ultimately hold up the name of God and live out God's mission for him in the world. Because if he didn't live with integrity amongst his friends, everybody would have known that word would have traveled, although they didn't have Facebook and social media where they could have popped up posts about him. The word has always traveled, right? Our reputation has always preceded us. It goes before. So Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He lived with integrity as a carpenter. He worked with integrity. He did the best on his job, ultimately, so that his character would uphold the mission of God and he could live out the mission that God called him to. Right? And then he, as he lives out that mission, he takes on this authentic humility. Like he really makes himself low. He's not pretending. He's not acting like, oh, woe is me. Like I'm so humble. But he actually lived humble. He actually lived as a poor man. He actually lived in a hard uh, neighborhood, in a hard place for him to live. He actually lived with this ridiculous generosity, giving so much away. He had this reckless love that just didn't make any sense, right? He actually lived that way with this incredible grace race that embraced people that others in society wouldn't embrace, and all that was possible, or at least it was held up by his character, which is one of integrity, as he lived into the neighborhood fully in it uh, and, and ultimately began to transform culture. And then there's a reason why. Um, and there's a reason why. Um, there's a reason why today there's churches <laughs> like scattered on every corner. Right? Because Jesus transformed culture. He made a seismic difference in our world. And it wasn't by grasping for rights. It wasn't by saying, I don't belong here, I belong there. It wasn't by elevating himself. But it was by love and grace and humility and compassion. It was about living in the community in a different way. Jesus was a cultural misfit, right? He didn't fit. He didn't look like he belonged. He didn't go with the ways of the world. He went against them, but he showed this incredible love and grace. And that becomes the model for the church. In fact, if you look in John chapter 17, um, Jesus actually teaches us this, this very thing. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples in verse 15, listen to what it says. He says, uh, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And so Jesus becomes the model or the example for us. In the same way that he lived fully in the neighborhood with humility, with Love with grace, with compassion, with generosity. As he lived fully in the neighborhood, that becomes the way that we are to live. Not avoiding the world and trying to pull ourselves out of it and have these Christian bubbles that we can exist among ourselves and not have any negative influences around us, but that we could go into dark spaces and actually live out God's mission and live like Jesus in those spaces and see them transformed into places where light exists. And what I've learned to do, and I, I am a work in progress and I'm still struggling here, um, 
But what I've learned to do and what I've strived to do is to not complain about the spaces I find myself in, um, but to strive to live as light there. I strive to not see obstacles and hardships as pain points, but to see them as opportunities for God to be glorified and people's lives to be changed and for our culture, our world to be transformed. And what it ends up doing when we can do that is it calms us and settles us in a miraculous way so that we can live steadily into that situation modeling the same thing Jesus modeled that became such a massive difference in the world. And what we're, we see in Ephesians chapter 6, we're getting there, what we see in Ephesians chapter 6 is that it's impossible to live fully in the world and not be overtaken by it without the sword of the Spirit, right? That if we're going to ever live fully into the world and we're not going to consume, um, uh, again, I don't even know what word I was trying to say, and not be uh, consumed by it, right? That's the word I was reaching for. And if we're going to live fully in the world and not be consumed by it, overtaken by it, become blurred within it, right? If we're going to live fully in the world but live distinct godly lives that are being transformed into Christ-likeness, if that's going to be our story, then we have to have the sword of the Spirit. Now, the sword that, of, of the Spirit, or at least the sword that the Romans would have carried, would have been what was known as a um, gladius. It was a, a double-edged sword that had a point on the tip that was good for both being double-edged, it was good for both slashing on the battlefield, and it was good for stabbing, right? Uh, so it was a sword that was good for slashing and stabbing. Now, one of the things that Paul could have done in this passage, right, he could have said, all right, now take up the bow and arrow of the Spirit, right? Um, that way you don't have to get close to the world, right? You can step back with your bow and arrow and just kind of, you know, shoot from a distance. He, he could have said, take up the spear of the Spirit so that you can have this at least eight, nine-foot spear that goes out before you so you can get a little close to the to the enemy, but not too close. But he says, take up the sword of the Spirit. And what every battle, uh, every soldier knew, and every person really in biblical times knew, it was that the sword was meant for close combat, right? It was meant for getting close to the enemy because ultimately you weren't throwing your sword like, I mean, it's just heavy. It just doesn't work. You were getting close to him and you were slashing and, and, and you were stabbing the enemy. You see, and, and so when Jesus says, take up the sword of the Spirit, or what Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, what he has in mind is a people that find themselves living fully in this world, so close to the world that they have to have a sword in order to combat the enemy in this world. Now, I think it's so important for us to say this, and it needs to be said over and over again, that the world is not our enemy, right? This reminds us that we're at war, but the world is not our enemy. This is the whole premise that this passage is based on. Right? We're not the, the world, um, people who live, like if, if we use those words, I don't, I don't really like that word, but we've used it, adopted it in, in our culture uh, as a result of uh, the influence of Scripture. But people who live worldly, right? Sometimes the church is like, oh, she's just too worldly for me, right? Or he's too worldly. He's just, I'm, I got my holy on and they're living too worldly, right? And sometimes that's the perception that we have towards the 
world, but if we're going to ever live in the world, amongst the world, and influence culture, we have to have the sword of the Spirit, but the sword is not to fight the world. It's recognizing that there's a greater power and force in this world, and if I'm waging war against an individual, ultimately I'm not fighting the right enemy, right? I'm, I'm fighting my brother or sister that Christ has died for in order to save them and transform them into his likeness. I am, if I'm fighting the world, I'm fighting someone that Jesus deeply loves. And I am um, dishonoring his sacrifice on the cross by fighting people, waging war against people. The Bible is teaching us that we are to fight the enemy, and the only way we fight the enemy is with the Word of God. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, uh, this passage that we're in, um, I'm going to begin in, in uh, verse 14 uh, and read up to verse 17 where it talks about the whole armor. Right? It says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so there's two big things that are happening here. One, we're not fighting the world. We're fighting the enemy. And two, we're fighting the enemy with the Word of God. That the Word of God is what goes before us and defeats the enemy. Now, this, in the Greek, and the Greek language is a lot more complex than English language, in that they had um, multiple words that kind of meant the same thing with different nuances. You know, I heard somebody use the example of this with love. Like, love is, there's like five or six different words for love in the Greek. Um, where we just say love, and we can talk about love as in like romantic love, brotherly love. We can talk about love as in like I love these shoes or something like that, right? We just use the word love to refer to, or I love pizza. That was kind of, I love God. We use love in different different kinds of ways. And the word the word word was similar to this. Right? There's multiple words that are used even in the Bible for the word word. In fact, one of the words is graphe, and, and graphe is a word that's used, um, it, it means like the written word, and that's not the one that's used in this passage, um, but graphe talks about this, this kind of written word of God. It's used in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy uh, 3 verse 16, where it says, all scripture is useful, right? When it talks about scripture, it's talking about that written word of God, all graphe is useful, Right, um, and so it's it's uh, talking about the written word of God, and, and a lot of times, at least in the New Testament, it's referring back to the Old Testament, being that the word of God that's been written, the scriptures, are useful, and through them we can learn about God. But that's not the one word that's used here uh, for word. Uh, but another word um, for for word is logos, and you may be familiar with this one too. In John chapter one, it says, "In the beginning was the." word, right? And that word is the word logos. Now, logos more refers to the message of what was written. 
And so when Jesus came as the Lagos, he became kind of as a, um, the fulfillment of, at least, the, the message that was written in the Old Testament. And so the, the Bible is saying, hey, that you have this written word, but Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the message so that we can understand fully what God has said through a person. That way we can study Jesus' life and we can see how what God even said in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. And that ultimately what God meant in the Old Testament is Jesus. And so he was constantly pointing our attention to Jesus in this, in, in throughout history. And so when he uses the word Lagos, it's this message. So it's almost like, so you can think of Lagos like this. You could say like, if I'm reading the Bible and I understand what it's saying, that's the Lagos. That's the word of God. That's the message of God. But that's not the word that Paul uses here uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. Rather, he uses this word uh, rhema, um, it, which means word, but it's more like the spoken word. And so what, what we're seeing here is these three almost fit together, right? There's this written word that conveys a message, and when we get the message, like when we understand Jesus, that's the Lagos. But when we apply it or hear it specifically talking to us and in our life, that's the rhema. That's the God's word spoken to us. Like that's like it's like this time when and I don't know if you've ever done this and this used to happen to me all the time it still it actually just happened this this past week once uh, it used to happen it felt like it was happening frequently at least more frequently at a time in my life where I would open the Bible and it felt like God was speaking like I opened it to a passage that God was speaking specifically to me or I would listen to a sermon and I would get goosebumps and chills because I felt like God or at least a preacher had been in my house listening to my conversations and he knew what I was going through and he had a word that he was speaking from God just for me. That's the rhema word of God, right? It's this word that is spoken that hits us in our heart, brings about this holy conviction, and makes us go, I need to change. That This word is from me, and when I apply it to my life, I live differently. And what Paul is trying to get the church to see in Ephesians chapter 6 that it's the graphe, God's word that's been spoken to us, that helps us to understand the message and get that what God was doing was done through Jesus Christ, and that becomes the rhema. Jesus' very own example becomes God's word spoken to us that we have recorded for us in the New Testament that hits us in different places at different times or different passages that jump out at different times. And as we take that and apply it to our lives, that becomes the weapon that defeats the enemy. And what he's teaching the church is that um, we're making a fatal mistake if we're living in the world without applying the word of God to our lives. We're making a fatal mistake if we've read God's word that is written and we've understood the message and we're not letting it be God's word spoken to us that we apply and live out. 
In fact, this is almost counterintuitive, but the scriptures are saying that as you hear God's word and live it out, it becomes the weapon that defeats the enemy, that he's defeated by us hearing and living out God's word. And so we don't have to fight like we think about fight or fight like we think about picking up a sword. We don't have to fight in that way. We simply apply the word of God to our lives. It becomes the sword of the spirit. It defeats the enemy. And we live victorious lives in this world. And that requires faith because there's very little strategy to that. The Bible is saying, listen for God speaking and make up in your mind that you're going to obey. You know, I think the question for all of us in this room and the answers, though some may be similar, many of them will be different is how has God spoken through his word to you? What has God called you to do? What excuses have you given for why you cannot do what God has called you to do? And another way of asking that question is, how have you rejected the victory that God has already given you? Because you've ignored his word. You've put down your sword, which is the word of God. You see, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is encouraging the church to take up its sword, so not so that it's fighting the world, but so that it's a fighting the enemy by living out God's word in this world so that we, the church, can transform culture. You know, this Sunday, like every Sunday, we, um, we share a time of communion. And um, this morning I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about the, the, at least for some, the unique way that we share in communion at Tri-Cities Church. Um, by making our ways as a way as a community to these four tables around the room. And by... Um, taking a piece of dry bread or cracker, you may want to call it, and actually breaking it and taking that and eating it. That's not the way I grew up taking communion. Um, I love the breaking that happens, though, when we break the cracker because it reminds us that the body of Christ was pierced on the cross that his skin was broken by the nails that went in his hands and that he hung there for us. And so as I listen to that sound of the breaking, I hear the victory being won by Jesus. Breaking is not typically a good thing. But this breaking was for our good and for God's glory. And it has freed us up. It has freed us up so that we can apply God's word to our lives. And we don't have to look at that and say, well, I, I, I'll try that, God. I know I'm going to fail. I know I can't do that. But I'll, I'll try. Right? That's, not, that's not the attitude we have. 
We say, God, I'll try, I'll try, I'll work my hardest. And I believe that your power in my weakness will be working through me and it will give me the victory, like the lived victory in this life over the enemy because it is my sword of your spirit that goes before me and defeats my greatest enemy. This morning as we share in communion, listen for the breaking and allow that breaking to be the sound of victory for you. Let's pray. God,